Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on June 28, 2015, on the basis of Genesis chapter 39. It has been observed that in modern warfare, the sniper plays the role of God. Think about that for a moment. Compared to the soldiers who are right there down on the ground, the sniper is sort of this unseen, powerful influence looking down from above. Compared to the soldiers down there on the ground who are right in the middle of all of the chaos of battle, the sniper is a little bit removed. He can deliberately and patiently look through his scope to determine who are the bad guys, who are the good guys, who gets to live and who's going to die. Compared to the soldiers that are down on the ground, when the sniper finally unleashes the lethal force that is at his fingertips, he's able to immediately see the impact of his decisions. And so yes, I suppose in in all of those ways, a sniper acts a little bit like God. That's of course assuming that he's on your side. I've mentioned once before in a sermon the story of Chris Kyle the Navy SEAL, whose life is the subject of the book and the movie American Sniper. Chris Kyle's exploits, his his accomplishments as a sniper were nowhere seen as clearly as they were in one particular battle over in Iraq, a battle in a city called Ramadi. Perched up in a fourth-story apartment, Kyle tallied more than 90 confirmed kills in that single battle alone. In fact, his influence in that battle was felt so strongly that eventually the Islamic insurgents decided to put out a bounty for his head to the tune of $80,000. An $80,000 bounty, and it also came with a nickname. You see, they didn't know who he was. They didn't know what his name was. They didn't know what he looked like. They simply referred to him as Al-Shaitan, the devil of Ramadi. Same guy. To some, he seemed like God. To others, he seemed like the devil. And I suppose life can be a little bit like that sometimes, can it? Here we are down on, on the ground amid all of the chaos that this world brings at us, trying to do our best, And we sense that there is this powerful, unseen influence looking down from above. And depending on how our lives are going at any particular moment, and sometimes that influence might seem like our loving God, but at other times that influence might seem like the devil. In fact, Martin Luther made a comment to that effect once. He said, when God works in our lives... He often turns his face away at first so that he seems like the devil. In fact, as Luther wrote those words, he had in mind the very story that we're looking at today, the story of Joseph. You can maybe understand why lately it seemed to Joseph as though God's influence in his life, God's aim, well, maybe it was a bit off. You see, God had made this incredible promise to Joseph. He had told him that in terms of power, in terms of honor and influence, he would eventually rise above all of his brothers and including his parents as well. 
But lately, things weren't going very well. Those same brothers who were jealous of Joseph threw him into a pit. They sold him to some traders who were on their way down to Egypt, and there Joseph became a slave. Sure, as a slave for this man named Potiphar, Joseph did very, very well. Eventually, Potiphar put him in charge of everything going on in the house. He entrusted all of his affairs to to this slave named Joseph. And yet, eventually, his wife also took notice of young Joseph. This young man who, we're told, was well-built and handsome. She started throwing herself at Joseph day after day after day, even forcing herself on him. And even though Joseph stood firm and resisted that temptation, eventually that scorned woman decided that she would level some pretty serious false allegations against Joseph. So Joseph ended up in prison, probably waiting on death row, all the way from this life of promise to life as a prisoner. So was God's aim with Joseph a little bit off? Today we're considering this kind of widespread idea out there that God wants nothing more than for us to be happy. If that were the case, I'm guessing there would be some times in your life when it seems as though God isn't very good at doing his job. When it seems as though God's aim is a bit off. When that powerful unseen influence that is controlling things seems a little bit more like an enemy and not so much like a friend. But you know, even more than all of that, here's where that idea that God just wants us to be happy, here's where that idea leads. Here's where the rubber really meets the road when we face temptation like Joseph did. If we assume that God's greatest desire is simply for us to be happy, then we will face temptation, we will make decisions with one single question in mind. What's going to make me happiest? Which path is going to be the most enjoyable? Which one is going to be the easiest and most convenient for me? And even if deep down we know that that path leads us away from the clear will of God for our lives, well, odds are we can talk ourselves into it. We can find a way to justify our behavior. That's where this idea that that God wants nothing more for us than to be happy, that's where that idea eventually will lead. Now, I know that when you hear that idea, when you see it on paper or when you hear it read aloud, you can recognize very easily that it it sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? That God would look down on us as if he would say, I want nothing more than for you guys to just be happy. And in fact, as we think about using that idea to justify all kinds of, of sinful behavior, we can probably think of all kinds of examples of things going on out there in the world around us. But friends, much more important for us this morning is to realize that that kind of thinking also very quickly and easily creeps its way into our minds too. In fact, it doesn't really even need to creep its way in there because by nature, it's already inside of us. By nature, we want to believe that we are the center of our own little universe. We want to believe that God exists simply for our own enjoyment. 
And when we assume that that is the case, we will make decisions, we will face temptations with that single question in mind. What is going to make me happiest? You see, if we assume that God is aiming at our happiness, well then inevitably we will aim at it as well. So if that's not the case, God isn't aiming at our happiness. What is he aiming for? What is he using all of that unseen power and influence to try to accomplish in our lives? Well, it's interesting that in this story of Joseph, there are two separate times where the writer takes the opportunity to tell us that the Lord was with Joseph. He stops from the story that he's telling And he wants to make it clear, here's where God is in this story. Here's what God is doing in Joseph's life. Two times and not when you'd expect. Not when Joseph is making a good impression on his superiors or getting another promotion to a higher position. No, the first time is right when Joseph becomes a slave. The second time is right when Joseph enters prison. In other words, at the very lowest and worst times of Joseph's life, that's when the writer wants us to know this isn't because God's aim is off. No, in fact, this is the moment where God is exactly on target with Joseph. Maybe picture it this way. You've probably seen a movie or maybe even a cartoon where two people are fighting with one another, wrestling with each other right at the edge of a very dangerous cliff. And just as both of them are trying to push the other one over the edge, and just as the one is right up against the edge of that cliff, he somehow manages to sneak out of the way, and the other person's momentum carries them over the edge. He defeats his enemy, not by overpowering him, but by using his enemy's power against him. And friends, that's exactly how our God deals with evil in our world. Very often he yields to it. Very often he permits it. Very often he gets out of its way. Not in weakness. Not in surrender. Simply so that he can use that evil's power against it. We see that so clearly in the life of Joseph. We see it in many other examples as well. And just in case it wasn't crystal clear that this is how God intends to deal with evil in our world. When Jesus came along, he actually gave it a nickname. He attached a symbol to this strategy that God uses to deal with evil, a symbol by which we Christians could readily identify it and rally together around it. That symbol is a cross. And when we think of a cross, I'm guessing what we think of first and foremost is the cross that Jesus died on, right? And rightly so. That instrument of execution is where Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world, where God's own Son suffered for you, where he paid your debt, where God's own Son gave up his life so that you could have eternal life with him. And yet for us Christians, the cross is more than a symbol of where Jesus died for us. It's also a symbol of this pattern, 
this strategy that God uses to deal with evil in our world, how he lets it have its way so that he can use its own power against it. That's never seen more clearly than in Jesus' death on the cross. And so it's no wonder that when Jesus came along and started to gather disciples, started to encourage people to follow him, he said, look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, then you too must daily pick up and carry a cross. With that invitation, Jesus is really doing two things. First of all, he is inviting us to live our lives under the same pattern that he did. Under a cross. In a world where he often lets evil have its way. But those words are also a very comforting promise. A promise that life under that pattern, life under a cross, will lead us exactly where it led Jesus. That as God permits evil... It's only so that he can use evil's power against it. A promise that suffering leads to salvation. That agony leads to glory. That death leads to life. That cross is proof that what God is aiming at in your life is not your happiness. It's much, much more. God is simply aiming at you. You are what God wants. With him in heaven forever. So when life seems at its worst, it's not because God's aim is off. It's not because God isn't doing his job. No, it's precisely then that his aim is exactly on target. He literally has his crosshairs pointed directly at you using all of that evil for your eternal good. And again, here's where that plays itself out. Here's where the rubber meets the road when temptation comes. Notice what Joseph said to Potiphar's wife. He didn't say, look, don't you think I'm a little bit young for you? He didn't say, well, you're not really my type. He didn't say, well, look, there's this other girl that I'm kind of interested in and I don't want to ruin things with her. He didn't even say, aren't you worried that we'll get caught? As Joseph faced that temptation, he wasn't thinking, what will make me happiest? What will be easiest for me? The only question he was asking is the one we have recorded for us. How could I possibly do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? Now, maybe we'd be tempted to think to ourselves, well, sure, easy enough for Joseph. Look at what eventually happened to him. Do you remember what happened to Joseph? So there he was in prison, and we're told it's where the king's prisoners were held. And there he met two people who had formerly worked for the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And by impressing them, by making a good impression on them, Joseph eventually got out of prison and worked for the king of Egypt. And by continuing, continuing to do good, he continued to rise higher and higher until only the king himself was above Joseph in power in Egypt. He had wealth, he had fame, he had fortune, he had power. You might say, well, it all worked out for Joseph in the end. And yet even in the palace, just as much as when he had been in prison, Joseph's sole concern 
were the words and promises of his God. Toward the end of Joseph's life, he made his family promise that when God eventually brought his people out of Egypt, that they would bring his body as well and bury it, lay it in its final resting place in Canaan, the land that God had promised his people. He probably could have received an incredible funeral in Egypt. He probably could have had one of those giant pyramids built just for him in his honor. He probably could have had a national holiday set aside just for him. And yet what Joseph desired most was his God's promised inheritance. You see, the story of Joseph is not only a perfect example of how God deals with evil in our lives. It's also a perfect example of what will naturally happen in our lives when we realize it. When we realize what God is aiming at. Not just to make us happy, but to make us His. Then when temptation comes, we'll gladly choose the difficult, sometimes painful path of self-denial. And when prosperity and success comes, our greatest desire will still remain God's promised eternal inheritance. You see, if we assume that God is aiming at our happiness, then, then inevitably we will aim at it as well. But when we realize that God is actually aiming at us, Inevitably, we will aim at him as well. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.